Welcome back to Think for Christ. We are in the middle of an Introduction to Apologetics series, and we're now ready to begin our survey of the various types of arguments that have been offered for the existence of God. But first, let's return to the classical model of apologetics that we're using as our guide so that we can get our bearings. As we saw, the classical model of making a rational case for Christian theism involves three general steps or stages. And over the last couple of episodes, we've sampled a couple of these first-stage foundational-level questions related to the nature of truth on the one hand and the nature of science on the other. Now, the next stage or the next step of the classical model involves making a case for theism by presenting arguments for God's existence. Now, in this series, we'll survey several kinds of arguments from the cosmological, teleological, and moral varieties. Now, there are some within the Christian community today who are hesitant or uncomfortable or uneasy with the general notion of arguing for God. And I found that one reason for this is that the word argument is often unreflectively associated with the word argumentative. Now, according to this common connotation, to argue is to engage in an emotionally heated disagreement or dispute with someone else, and few believers will be attracted to the idea of quarreling or disputing with others. However, in logic, the word argument has very precise meaning that has nothing at all to do with the idea of a disagreement or a dispute. Logically speaking, an argument consists of a series of statements with a well-defined relation to each other. Some of the statements in an argument are called premises, and they serve as the grounds for affirming another statement in an argument that's called the conclusion. Now, the logical notion of an argument captures the way the human mind naturally engages in rational thought. The mind moves from premises to conclusion, which is why the conclusion is said to follow from the premises. So it's perfectly possible for two people to engage in argumentation in this logical sense, in a way that is entirely civil and respectful. In other words, the Christian can present arguments without being argumentative, We can reason with others in a way that is rationally vigorous and is yet at the same time both humble and charitable. Before diving in to survey the various kinds of arguments given for God's existence, let me just make a couple of general remarks about the nature of this project. First, recall that the arguments given here will be seeking to demonstrate the truth of theism. That is, that there exists a single personal creator God. Going on to argue for Christian theism requires us to advance to the next stage of the classical model where we consider Christian revelation in particular, and especially the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, sometimes you'll hear an objection related to theistic arguments to the effect that they are useless because they don't get you all the way to Christianity. In other words, they don't get you all the way to the Trinity or to the Incarnation on their own. This is true. But it's also irrelevant as an objection, since that's not what the arguments are intended to do. None of the ablest defenders of the arguments for theism have ever claimed that by themselves they lead exclusively to Christian theism. But just because they don't get you all the way to Christianity, it doesn't follow from this that they have no value. In fact, I think they have great value for at least three reasons. Now, I've mentioned these reasons briefly before in this series but they're worth reproducing here. First, each one of the traditional arguments for God are sufficient on their own to refute atheism. If any of these arguments for God go through, 
then atheism, and naturalism for that matter, is false. This would mean that the real debate would no longer be, uh, be between atheism and theism, but would rather be between various brands of theism. Now, taking atheism along with non-theistic forms of religion off the table is no small achievement. Second, making a rational case for the existence of God functions as a kind of preamble for the possibility of miracles and revelation. If God exists, then miracles are obviously possible. In fact, one massive miracle has already occurred, namely the creation of the universe itself. So establishing the existence of God sets the stage for the serious consideration of miracle claims and of claims of divine revelation. Third, arguments for the existence of God, if successful, not only tell us that God exists, but they also tell us something about what God must be like. Theistic arguments are in this way vital to the task of natural theology, which is the discipline which seeks to find out what can be known of God from common human experience and the natural powers of human reason. Theologians and philosophers down through the ages have firmly believed that the Creator can be known in His creation. That is, we can know something about the cause, the Creator, by reflecting on the effect, on the creation. Another thing that's important to be aware of when it comes to the various arguments for God is that they stand alone, or they're independent from each other. Each argument must be considered on its own merits and independently from the others. This means that the failure of any particular argument for God does nothing at all to affect the soundness or the cogency of any of the other arguments for God. Now, this is important because there are many arguments that have been given for the existence of God over the years. Elvin Plantica alone, for example, has famously suggested two dozen or so theistic arguments. And each of the arguments for God must be evaluated, again, independently, and they stand or fall on their own strength. If some argument for God turns out to be weak or is refuted, this will do nothing to weaken or refute the other ones. So we should not think about the various arguments for God as depending on each other, like links in a chain, where if one link fails, the entire chain fails, the chain being only as strong as its weakest link. Rather, as William Lane Craig points out, we should think about the arguments as links in a suit of chain mail. The failure of any particular link in the suit of chain mail will not greatly affect the overall strength of the armor. Although the arguments stand alone and are not dependent on one another, taken together, they do form a kind of cumulative case for God, with each successful argument adding its own independent strength and warrant for the reasonableness of theism, just as the links in a suit of chain mail taken together provide better strength than any one link does on its own. Now, when it comes to arguments for theism, there are two broad strategies or methodologies that have been deployed over the centuries. There is the older, traditional method of metaphysical demonstration, and then there is the more modern and contemporary method of probabilistic theorizing. Now, these are philosophical terms of art, and discussing the differences of the two approaches would take us far deeper than we want to go in an introduction to apologetics. In fact, very few introductory lessons in apologetics, at least the Protestant ones that I'm familiar with, will even mention the different methodologies that have been deployed when arguing for theism. But I think it's important to be aware of the different approaches, even if unpacking them in any detail will take us deeper than we want to go here. So let me just briefly try to explain the two approaches and point out some distinguishing features. So let's start with the traditional method of metaphysical demonstration. 
Metaphysics is that branch of philosophy that studies the fundamental nature and principles of reality, or of being itself. Since everything that exists is real, or is a being of some kind, metaphysics is concerned with the broadest and most general principles and causes of reality, principles and causes that apply to absolutely every being in the universe. As it is sometimes put, the goal of metaphysics is to carve reality at its joints by uncovering the basic principles, causes, and relations that are common to all beings. Arguments for theism that are metaphysical in nature begin from various general phenomenon or aspects of reality that are evident to us and that are common to all natural beings. They then reason from these broad and evident features of reality to the ultimate or first cause of the existence and occurrence of those features. The traditional metaphysical arguments lead to the positing of a being that must transcend the categories of being that require a cause or an explanation. So for example, Aristotle argued that in order to explain the fact that beings are moving and changing, we will ultimately need to appeal to an unmoved mover or an unchanged changer. Thomas Aquinas argued that in order to account for the fact that there are beings that are caused to exist by other beings, we will ultimately need to appeal to an uncaused cause. And Gottfried Leibniz argued that in order to explain the fact that there are contingent beings, beings that happen to exist but who could not have existed, we will ultimately need to appeal to a necessary being, a being that could not possibly not exist. The family of arguments for God of the cosmological variety tend to be in the form of metaphysical demonstration. A good contemporary example of arguments for God in the tradition of metaphysical demonstration is Edward Fazer's book, Five Proofs of the Existence of God. In this book, Fazer develops five philosophical proofs that are inspired by arguments from Aristotle, Plotinus, Augustine, Aquinas, and Leibniz. The traditional metaphysical arguments for God are pre-scientific, now, by pre-scientific, I don't mean that they are archaic or outmoded, but rather that they are concerned with those fundamental aspects of nature or of reality, aspects which must themselves be taken for granted or presupposed by science. Now, since metaphysical arguments for God do not rely on science, they cannot be challenged or overturned by the findings of science. Moreover, since they begin from premises that science must presuppose or take for granted, they are stronger than theistic arguments that rely on science or appeal to scientific facts or theories. The traditional metaphysical arguments are also demonstrations. They are arguments designed to prove their conclusions, which is why they're sometimes called proofs. The arguments are deductive in logical form, which means that the premises are linked to the conclusion in a very strong way, such that if the premises are true, the conclusion follows with strict logical necessity. That is to say, if the premises of a deductive argument are true and the form of the argument is valid, then the conclusion must be true. And the arguments, if sound, are also definitive. This means that they establish God as the only possible cause or the only possible explanation for the phenomenon in question. Now, the traditional metaphysical arguments are very powerful, which is why, historically speaking, they've been the most prominent and the most important arguments for God. Yet, they're commonly overlooked or deliberately left out by popular-level apologetics today. Now, one reason for this is that the arguments for theism that are metaphysical in nature can be difficult. They're difficult to understand. They involve abstract metaphysics 
and reasoning that can be hard to follow without some philosophical training. Far more common today is to argue for theism by means of the methodology that I'm calling probabilistic theorizing. Now this is a method of argumentation that's certainly more familiar, as it's commonly deployed in the sciences, in uh, historical studies, and even in criminal investigations, for example. Probabilistic theorizing goes by different names. It's sometimes called abductive reasoning, or more commonly, inference to the best explanation. The goal of a probabilistic argument is to show that some given hypothesis or explanation is the best, or the superior hypothesis or explanation for a given phenomenon. In arguments for theism that are probabilistic in nature, God is put forward as the superior hypothesis of some given set of facts. Those who deploy this method of argumentation must show that rival hypotheses either fail or are inferior to the God hypothesis. Probabilistic arguments for God have a less ambitious aim than do metaphysical demonstrations. Whereas the traditional metaphysical arguments seek to show that God is the only possible cause or explanation for some set of facts or phenomenon, probabilistic arguments seek to show that God or some designing intelligence or mind is the best or most plausible or most likely explanation. One form of probabilistic theorizing that is very popular today often goes by the name of worldview comparison. In worldview comparison, total or big pictures of reality compete with each other for large-scale explanatory superiority. Apologists who engage in, in worldview comparison argue that theism as a big picture of reality is a better explanation than that of atheism for some broad features of the universe and of human experience, such as, for example, the objective moral landscape, the Big Bang, the cosmic fine-tuning, the specified complexity of biological life, the nature of human consciousness, and so on. A good contemporary example of arguing for God by the methodology of probabilistic theorizing is philosopher of science Stephen Meyer's book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. In this book, Myers argues that God is the best explanation for the Big Bang, for the fine-tuning of the universe, and for the specified biological complexity of life. Finally, let me say a few things about what makes for a good or successful argument for theism. This is a really big subject that we could spend a lot of time on, but I just want to make a, a few comments in summary fashion. Some atheistic and skeptical philosophers today set the target of success for a theistic argument so high that it becomes practically impossible to meet. They often will say that in order for an argument for theism to go through, the premises have to be certain or compelling or beyond rational doubt. But this standard for a successful argument for theism is problematic for two reasons. First, this clearly sets the bar too high, since if an argument has to be rationally certain, compelling, or beyond rational doubt, then there could be no successful arguments for anything of real significance. For this reason, the vast majority of philosophers today reject this standard for a successful argument that's often set by atheists and skeptics. The second problem is that what a person finds to be rationally compelling or persuasive pertains to that person's subjective judgment and is person-relative. That is to say that two equally rational individuals can differ as to the relative strength of a given argument. And this is because what a person finds convincing or persuasive is often as influenced 
by broader psychological factors as it is by purely rational reasons. We have to remember that there are two powers of the human soul. There is the power of the intellect on the one hand and there is the power of the will on the other. And belief formation is not just a matter of reason, but it's also a matter of the will. Although it's common for atheists, skeptics, agnostics to represent themselves as if they're non-resistant or neutral or dispassionately open to the evidence wherever it may lead, Christian revelation tells us that the human race, apart from grace, is decidedly set against God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans that in our fallen state of sin, we willfully suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So from a Christian perspective, the idea that there's anyone apart from God's grace who is truly non-resistant or impartial or unbiased in both intellect and will is just not true. If Christianity is true, then unbelief is at least as much a matter of the will as it is a matter of the intellect. The truth is there are, there are just no arguments that are compelling or persuading in the sense of forcing someone to believe. There's no argument that can drag you kicking and screaming to accept the conclusion or that are beyond rational doubt. People can always find reasons to doubt things. There have always been and there will always be committed skeptics. And even someone who can't find a flaw in an argument can still refuse to believe the conclusion. So, in my opinion, the question is not whether you can rationally doubt the premises. Skepticism is cheap. The question is whether you ought to doubt them or whether you should doubt them. So, with this in mind, it seems to me that, minimally speaking at least, a good argument for the existence of God, a successful argument, will accomplish two basic objectives. First, a good argument will show that to believe in God is the rational and reasonable thing to do. That given the premises of the argument, the rational person should accept the conclusion. And negatively, a good argument, I think, will raise the cost of unbelief. As I said, a determined skeptic can almost always find a way to doubt one of the premises in an argument. A strong argument for theism, however, will contain premises that are evident or highly plausible and therefore rationally costly to doubt. Okay, so those are just some general remarks that I wanted to make as kind of a uh, preamble to our consideration of the various kinds of arguments that have, that have been offered for the existence of God. So next time we will dive into the cosmological argument.